for the members here. If you are a daily Bible reader, if you'd please raise your hand. side is fine. The right side. Is. All right. Thank you very much. Let's uh, uh, go ahead and begin with the prayer. Our Father, we thank you for this day and uh, for the measure of health that we enjoy. Pray, Father, that you will bless us with what we need to serve you in this life. We thank you for the blessings of serving you, and pray you will bless our efforts to understand your word and what our responsibilities are this morning, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, um, our study this morning is going to be one of contrasts. It's a study in contrast. And as you can tell by the, uh, by the flyer, our contrast is going to be between a study of Ananias and Sapphira with Aquila and Priscilla. So in order to appreciate the lesson uh, even more so, I'd like to give just a few minutes of backdrop uh, for the book of Acts so we see where this uh, event uh, fits in. Uh, think about the book of Acts perhaps as the kingdom of heaven coming to earth and uh, functioning as it is in heaven. Uh, The kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. It's actually an extension of the gospel according to Mark, uh, according to Luke, excuse me. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all present Jesus as the uh, king, God ruling and reigning as king again. Remember in 1 Samuel chapter 8, uh, God was rejected as king. And so they set up a king and uh, had all that history of uh, trouble. When men function as kings, you get, you get trouble. I think that was the message of uh, the, first, the book of First and Second Kings. Well, God is ruling and reigning again through his son. And the book of Acts continues the narrative on what the kingdom of heaven would look like and should look like on earth. And so that's the book of Acts in general. If you'll notice in Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 8, we have somewhat of a summary of the book or an outline. This is Acts again, chapter 1, beginning in verse 6 and reading through verse 8. They therefore, when they were come together, asked him, saying, Lord, Doth thou at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has set within his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and ye shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. 
So Luke is providing for us a, a wonderful geographical outline of the book. And that's precisely what happens. It starts in Jerusalem, extends to Judea, and um, to Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. The events of the first Pentecost after the resurrection of Jesus are recorded in Acts chapter 2. And uh, Luke informs us that there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. That's chapter 2, verse 5. So we have a big crowd. Now, we've had a pretty decent crowd uh, this weekend. I think we had as many as 270 uh, two nights ago, and that was a record beater for us. 270 people. So imagine if everyone here decided they were going to stay. Now, some of you, of course, came with the uh, express purpose of leaving today or uh, perhaps tomorrow. But imagine thousands of people coming to one place and remaining there. Some of the, uh, some of the difficulties, the logistics of, of taking care of that many people when they've decided to stay and their money has run out. That's sort of the situation we have in the early chapters of the book of Acts. Remember, 3,000 people uh, were added to the kingdom in Acts chapter 2, being baptized. And thousands more joined their ranks in the chapters to come. Another way to outline the book of Acts is to notice the cycle. There's a particular cycle that occurs multiple times in the book. It starts off with conflict, the gospel's preached, and then there's conflict and triumph. So that's, that's the pattern, conflict and triumph. And at the end of each of these cycles in the book of Acts, we get these brief summary statements. If you'll notice in chapter 6, verse 7, we find one of those, in fact, the first of these summary statements. Luke writes this, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. You'll find that same sort of summary. You know, the word of God increased or grew, and the numbers increased, and uh, favor was found. That's the sort of thing we find in the book of Acts at the end of each one of those cycles of conflict and triumph. So now, I think this helps to set the stage for the lesson of the hour. Again, remember, thousands of people from every nation are in Jerusalem, and they were enjoying the training that was accompanying sitting at the apostles' feet. So again, imagine the challenge that may have faced the early church in those opening days when so many people, thousands from every nation, were joining to hear the gospel and to be trained in the gospel in those opening days. Now, my assignment this morning is to contrast Ananias and Sapphira, and you'll see why that backdrop is important to our study this morning, and to contrast them with uh, Ananias or Aquila and Priscilla. Um, the real contrast, though, if I may suggest, is with what occurs in Acts chapter 4. In Acts chapter 4 and chapter 5, we find a contrast. I found it very interesting that when I read some commentaries just in preparation for this lesson, 
how the commentaries I checked normally focused on the fact that the Holy Spirit is God. And that's true. And that's one of the points made in that opening chapter in Acts chapter 5. And you'll see why in a moment. But I don't know that that's the primary focus of the chapter or that, that paragraph. And, and it demonstrated to me a problem I see in how we read or how we study the Bible. We may read it in paragraph, uh, a paragraph here and a paragraph there. Or we might read chapter 1 one day and we might read chapter 2 the next. And we don't remember what was in chapter 1, but we're reading and that's still good but we're not looking at the whole picture. We're not learning to read each part of the Bible or any book in light of the whole book itself. So let's begin by by looking at Acts chapter 4 and uh, reading beginning in verse 32. Remember the the great crowds that have, have gathered in Jerusalem. In chapter 4, verse 32, Luke writes, And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and soul. And not one of them said that aught of the things which he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power gave the apostles their witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Brethren, when the gospel was preached in the first century, the resurrection of Jesus was included. That was part of the good news. That was the means by which God reigned again. That was the means by which God took his son and placed him at his right hand and he began ruling with all authority in heaven and on earth. So the good news is that God reigns again through his son. That's why it's summarized that way. And great grace was upon them all. For neither was there among them any that lacked As many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the prices of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet and distribution was made unto each according as any had need. So now I want you to notice, you would see this I think yourself if you sat down and just read this slowly yourself, but there's a a pattern set in these few verses. And the pattern is this. People had possessions. You could circle the word had. They had houses and land. And number two, they sold those possessions. Number three, they brought it to the apostles. And number four, they laid it at their feet. That's the pattern. Now notice in verses 36 and 37, we have a Case in point, you know, the first verses there, 32 through 35, give us the pattern in general. But then Luke gives us a case in point of someone doing that. He writes, And Joseph, who by the apostles was surnamed Barnabas, which is being interpreted son of exhortation, a Levite, a man of Cyprus by race, having a field, sold it, and brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. Did you see the specific words used by Luke? Just like the opening paragraph of our study this this morning. Uh, He had possessions. Barnabas had possessions. He sold them. He brought the proceeds of what he sold to the apostles. 
and laid it at their feet. In other words, for their use as they saw fit. It's a wonderful picture, isn't it? People in Jerusalem were in need. Brethren, young in Christ, new in Christ. And they, they didn't go home. And they had uh, fundamental needs of food and drink and clothing, perhaps shelter. So what did the early church do? They sold their possessions. Now I don't mind telling you, that's always been a real challenge to me. What would I be willing to lay at the apostles' feet if I were among them? I'd be glad to sell all my wife's stuff in the garage. But my stuff is valuable. What would you be willing to sell? A house? I know there are some people who have sold property in the past six months, and they've sent large sums of money to the church here for the work of the school. I'd say that's kind of a laying at the apostles' feet. The proceeds, some of the proceeds of the selling of that land and that property. I see that happening. And it's, uh, it warms my heart and it provides me with a great example of what I ought to do. All right, so that's setting us up for the negative example of Ananias and Sapphira. In chapter 5, notice beginning in verse 1, but, that's a contrast word, isn't it? But, Brother Hugh Shire used to say the word, but, you know, I'm going to do this, but, kind of eliminates everything that preceded. We're getting an example that's a negative, a negative example of what we find in the closing verses of Acts chapter 4. A certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession and kept back part of the price, his wife also being privy to it and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why hath Satan filled thy heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back part of the price of the land? While it remained, did it not remain thine own? In other words, it was yours to do as you chose. And, he goes on to say, after it was sold, was it not in your power, in thy power? How is it that thou hast conceived this thing in thy heart? You know, first of all, we're told Satan had a part in it in the opening verses. And then he pegs it on him, pins the blame on Ananias himself. And Ananias, hearing these words, verse 5, fell down and gave up the ghost, and great fear came upon all that heard it. And the young men arose and wrapped him round, and they carried him out and buried him. And it was about the space of three hours after, <coughs> when his wife, not knowing what was done, came in. And Peter answered unto her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yea, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to try the spirit of our Lord? Behold, the feet of them that have buried thy husband are at the door, and they shall carry thee out. She fell down immediately at his feet and gave up the ghost. And the young men came in and found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her to her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church 
and upon all that heard these things. All right, now this is a Bible class, so I want to ask you a question. What is the difference between what Ananias and Sapphira did and what the people in Acts chapter 4 and in particular Barnabas did? What is the difference? All right, Ananias and Sapphira held back some of the proceeds, but finish that for me. Okay, they gave it all. They, that's the pretense, pretending to do one thing while you're doing something else. That's hypocrisy. Uh, Roger, you had your hand up. Yes, and uh, interestingly enough, the emphasis in many commentaries is on the fact that they lied to God, and uh, one line says it's the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is a great passage for demonstrating the fact that the Holy Spirit is not like some groups, just a holy disposition, but a person within the Godhead. So that's a very powerful, powerful passage, but it's not the main purpose of the, of the text. The main purpose of the text is to provide a contrast with what went on in Acts chapter 4. So the similarities are they had all things in common, or they, they had, they had possessions, they sold them, both groups. Uh, they brought it to the apostles and laid it at their feet. That's the, common, the commonality between the two. But the dissimilarity is in what Ananias and Sapphira did in holding back a part. If you'll look at your Bibles in chapter 5, again, verses 3 and 4, Peter says, Ananias, why hath Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Now Barnabas acquired the name of son of exhortation for the very reason that he had possessions, sold them, brought it to the apostles, and laid it at their feet for their use in helping the people who were in Jerusalem. Sapphira, after Ananias dies, shows up three minutes later, three hours later, and after being found out, her character being found out for what it was, she too died. That's the parallel between Ananias and Sapphira. They both died because they both lied to God or the Holy Spirit. Now, let me ask you a question here. <clears throat> what do you suppose motivated Ananias and Sapphira to hold back part, but to give what they did and to, to um, make it out that it was the whole of what they had? Yes. All right, pride. What's that? Boasting. Greed. Yes. 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 All right, that may have been part of it, yes. Um, 
if, I were, if we were just to read chapter 4 and into chapter 5, the emphasis on Barnabas is that he was given the name son of exhortation. He was receiving legitimate... Is, is it appropriate to praise people when they've done what's good? You know, rendering honor to, to whom honor is due. But remember, Jesus said in... Uh, it's a very interesting thing in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 5, he says... Uh, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Matthew 7, verse 1, he says, Take heed that you do not your righteousness before men to be seen in them. Now, we've gone over this in class, so I don't want a student to answer, but, um, or Carl, because he teaches us. <laughs> but um, what is the difference between those two, two lines there? One tells us to let our light so shine that they may see your good works. The other, Jesus says in Matthew 6, 1, take heed that you do not your righteousness before men to be seen of them. What is the difference between those two? That's right. In Matthew 5, the ultimate goal is to let your light so shine that they may see your good works and do what? Glorify your Father who is in heaven. That's the goal in Matthew 5. In Matthew 6, verse 1, the goal is to be seen of men. And Jesus says, if that's the goal, you'll get your reward, but that's it. You'll receive the praise of men, but that's where it stops. Looks to me like that may be going on here with Ananias and Sapphira. Yes. Yes, that's a very real possibility, a lack of faith. Um, yeah. Who knows, uh, many of those things may very well have been at work together in uh, provoking them to hold back part of it. That's right. Yes, that's a very, very good point there. So, now, when I was reading through all this and preparing, I couldn't help but remember something I'd read some time ago uh, by a man named Rodney Stark. Rodney Stark is a sociologist of religion. And I vaguely remember him, and I had the book in my library, have the book in my library, titled The Rise of Christianity. The Rise of Christianity. And he gives four reasons why the early church, not only the first century, but even well beyond the age where the apostles were performing signs and wonders. You know, one of the things that I find interesting in the opening chapters of the book of Acts are the words signs and wonders. And then the people, as they're reacting or responding, we see words like awe and astonishment and wonder. The people are amazed at what they see. But after that era where signs and wonders were no longer being performed, the church was still at work. And I think they had just as much, perhaps, an impact on the world as the early church did with the signs and wonders. And so one of the reasons Rodney Stark argues that the early church grew can anyone guess what he might have said? 
Why do you suppose the early church in the first three or four centuries grew? Uh, so much so that it outstripped paganism. And it stri- outstripped paganism so much that one emperor named Julian was trying to find other programs he could put into place that outstripped the Christians. He felt like he was being outdone. Because he was. So what do you suppose um, Mr. Stark said, what did he find in his research of why the early church grew? Yes, Tom. It, is the, it was the goodness of the early church and their willingness to help people in need that helped the church to grow. At least, it didn't make the church grow. I think it just opened the door for people to consider the gospel. That's the door that, that's the door that was opened. The, the, it was opened by means of the good works. Let me, let me uh, read the first paragraph of that uh, book for your consideration. I love the way he begins the book. He, use, he starts with the word finally. Finally, all questions concerning the rise of Christianity are one. One, number one. How was it done? That's the question. And he says, how did a tiny and obscure messianic movement from the edge of the Roman Empire dislodge classical paganism and become the dominant faith of Western civilization? Although this is the only question, it requires many answers. He gives four. Not one thing led to the triumph of Christianity. But among the four things that led to the rise of Christianity in the pagan world is the love that they exhibited toward one another. The world watching the church exhibit love toward one another. Remember Galatians 6, verse 2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Or how about another passage in Galatians, uh, so then as we have opportunity... Let us do good to everyone, especially those of the household of faith. And Luke writes, There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what they sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as they had need. So Rodney Stark's conclusion about the early church that... that um, answers the question about the, the expanse of Christianity, including the second and third century, was, as Tom put it, generosity. It was the love that the early church manifested, a love that was not necessarily known in the world. Let me read a few more paragraphs here. He says, Plagues, fires, natural disasters, and devastation from riots... And war struck, a, war struck a city. Christians, instead of fleeing to the countryside, stayed to care for their own and for others. Even without the knowledge of modern medicine and science, the simple fact of providing food, water, and shelter to sick people vastly improved survival rates in times of widespread disease. It also sent a powerful message of solidarity to those pagans who happened to receive a helping hand. Their results over time were shifting social networks 
and regular conversions to this community of faith so dedicated to service. Let me read one other quote here from Tertullian. He's one of the, called the early church fathers, and he wrote, a, uh, among other things, a, a book or a tract called Apology. This is a very moving statement in my estimation. He said, It is the care of the helpless, our practice of loving kindness that brands us in the eyes of many of our opponents. Only look, they say. Look how they love one another. Look how they love one another. Yes, Roger. Well, of course it is the power of the gospel. I think Rodney Stark's point, and the only point I'm trying to make, is that when people went out, in, especially into the pagan culture, and did good, that, that opened the door for them to listen to the gospel. It wasn't the good deeds alone that, that did it. It is, of course, the gospel. That's the power of God unto salvation. But it was seeing the genuine love that one that people had toward one another that opened their eyes and their ears to hear the gospel. Um, I remember when I first got here, Brother Jamie led uh, a host of people down into the Houston area due to the um, hurricane that struck. Do you suppose any good was done with that? Would anyone deny that some good was done with that? I don't think anyone would deny it. And in my estimation, no matter who received those goods, especially if they were not in Christ, that, that probably uh, was a real possibility of a door, being a door opener for them. So benevolence was one of the three ways the early church got the, op- got the attention of a pagan world and opened the door for, as Brother Roger pointed out, for the gospel to be preached. So the display of care over those who remained in Jerusalem after their conversion necessitated to a degree uh, a concern that compelled those folks to sell their property, to sell what they had, and to bring it to the apostles and to lay it at their feet. Ananias, and, what is the problem then with Ananias and Sapphira's account in chapter 5? Why would that be with this backdrop and the power, the potential influence, the doing of good and the love of one for another in the church? Yes, Mike. Right. 
That's right. Yeah, uh, a teacher of mine said a great model for living is what Jesus said prior to his death. Uh, Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. That's right. Yes. So now some of you may be wondering, I'm not sure, but some of you may be wondering why, why God struck them dead for what they did. That may very well be like the question I asked when I became a Christian. I, I was really struggled with uh, the consequences of taking a piece of fruit from a tree in Genesis chapter 3. What could have been so wrong that the consequence of death was given to it? And uh, Brother J.W. McGarvey in one of his sermons years ago said, probably the best gauge for determining how heinous a sin is, is by taking a look at the the consequences God has assigned for it. That helped put what happened in the Garden of Eden in, in perspective for me. I didn't appreciate as a young person or as a young Christian the heinousness of what went on in Genesis chapter 3. I have a better, a better appreciation for it now. You know, Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, so that death passed unto all men, for that all sin. And so, what was the... What, what was the consequence of lying to God or lying to the Holy Spirit in this particular instance? It was death. They died because of what happened there. And so Ananias and Sapphira provide us with a great contrast with what we find in Acts chapter 4. Now, even though the, the, uh, the natural contrast is drawn between what happens in chapter 4 and chapter 5. The assignment is to take a look at the difference between Ananias and Sapphira with Aquila and Priscilla. I want to tell you a quick story here. Um, How many of you are familiar with uh, the old George Burns and Gracie Allen Act? The names George Burns and Gracie Allen. I know this may uh, get lost on the youth, but um, so we were at a, a church party and at someone's house, and all the women, husbands and wife party, all the women were, you know, set somewhere where they couldn't hear us guys. And then we were asked questions, and we were supposed to answer the way we thought our wives would answer. And the question asked, one of the questions was, what famous couple do you think your wife will say you most resemble? And I said, George, George Burns and Gracie Allen. Because, as one of our elders back in California said, the whole world is Val's straight man, or Val's a straight man to the whole world. She is so innocent in so many things and in so many ways. She's kind of like the whole world's straight man, which I thought was pretty funny. So I said, George Burns and Gracie Allen. The women came back, and when it came time to uh, ask Val what she would say, Val said, Ananias and Sapphira. I could not believe it. And I said, what? She said, Ananias. And everyone's laughing by then. And finally she said, no, I meant Aquila and Priscilla. (laughs) Which actually proved my point. George Burns and Gracie Allen. There's a big contrast between Ananias and Sapphira 
and Aquila and Priscilla. Uh, they were a husband-wife team, just like Ananias and Sapphira were. They were tent makers in Rome. They went from Rome to Ephesus to Corinth and then back to Rome because of a decree of Claudius uh, back in that day. Notice uh, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 19. So they leave Corinth for Ephesus, and Paul concludes 1 Corinthians by writing, The churches of Asia send you greetings, Aquila and Priscilla, or Prisca, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. Now, we don't know a lot about Aquila and, or Aquila and Priscilla, but we know the church met in their house. Notice also in Romans 16, verse 3, Paul closes his remarks, uh, puts in his closing remarks to the church in Rome. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. So apparently it was routine for the church to meet in Aquila and Priscilla's home. I do not believe it is an overstatement to say that Aquila and Priscilla laid their very lives at the feet of the Lord. You don't have that language in Romans 16 or 1 Corinthians 16 or Acts chapter 18. But I think it would be safe to say they laid their entire life down at the feet of our Lord. And they did whatever they needed to serve Him So contrasting uh, Aquila and Priscilla with Ananias and Sapphira, I see a couple of of points, and I want you to think about this. If we have any time left, I'd like to hear from you. But number one, Peter in Acts 5 points to Satan as being somehow, someway behind the activities of of Ananias and Sapphira. And even though we're not told explicitly, I think it is implicit that the Lord was behind the work of Aquila and Priscilla. Another contrast, Ananias and Sapphira laid only part of their proceeds, as if it were the whole, at the feet of the apostles. Aquila and Priscilla risked their very necks, their very lives, for the apostle Paul. Think back again to what Tertullian said when he wrote, Only look, they say, look how they love one another. Can you imagine if the church had, or if we do have, that reputation today? Does the world look at us and say, look at how they love one another? And the third contrast I see is found in that what each one laid at the apostles' feet or the Lord's feet somehow is evidence of what they loved. Can, can you all see what Aquila and Priscilla loved? They loved the Lord. They were willing to risk their lives for others. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Jesus said, and you are my friends if you keep my commandments. They were willing to risk their very lives. 
what did, Anna, what did Ananias and Sapphira lay at the feet of the apostles? How would you summarize that? Maybe we could say they did not leave it all. They only left a portion under the guise of having left it all. Would you agree with me if I were to say that the power of influence to open the door for the gospel to be heard in the first century and those first opening centuries was at least in part in how the church loved one another. And that that same power of influence is available to us today. We don't have to speak in tongues. We do not have to raise the dead. You know, in fact, when, early, when the early church ministered to people who were suffering from plagues and sickness, as you can imagine, some of them died trying to help these people back to health. They died for them in trying to help. Is that same power of influence available to us today? Now, I know that um, many of you have laid things at the apostles' feet, and you are to be commended for it. But this lesson begs us to ask the question, what are we laying at the apostles' feet? What are we laying at the Lord's feet? What are we willing to lay at his feet today in service, in his service? Let's close with that. Can anyone think of anything today that might be parallel to what went on in Acts chapter 4 today? Anything that parallels? I've already suggested that there are people who, I mean, it's not a hard, hard parallel to see. People are selling their land and they're sending some of the proceeds to the church here for the work of the school. That uh, that's, seems to me like an exact parallel to what went on back then. Yes? So laying at the apostles' feet our willingness to, is that what you're saying, comply with the roles, or am I hearing you right? All right. We probably only have a minute or two left. Yes, Raphael. That's right. Who had it? Yes. No. That is a very good point. I'm sorry I didn't bring that up myself. That's excellent. They, she did not have to do that. They both did not have to die. Any other examples you can think of? I think our time is about up. Our time is up. Thank you.